want to start with a letter I received some, some, from someone here at Grace. They gave me permission to share an excerpt, and, and here's what they write. They say, hi, Pastor Jonathan, I think I've missed the boat. Although I know God is ever-present in my life, I have to wonder why I am being punished. I've not had the best life growing up, but I have adjusted and acknowledged that God has his reasons. But I cannot understand why, contrary to our continuous efforts and personal changes, we face another year with financial challenges. Up until two years ago, I understood that God needed to bring us to our knees. The deaths in our family, the relocating, the job losses, medical problems, all helped to bring us closer to a relationship with God. What I don't understand is why now, after bringing Jesus into our hearts and homes, finding a church family, helping those in need, praying, reading our Bible, why are we still going through such tough times? What have I done wrong? Is it because I lost my temper? Is it the rocky relationship with my mother? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Am I not good enough? They continue on for a bit and then they close like this. Help me understand what there is to learn because otherwise I just think I am doing something wrong. They ask a question I think a lot of us wrestle with at times when we go through some kind of a crisis, uh, suffering, disappointment. Maybe you're there today and we can ask, God, are you, are you trying to, like, is this some kind of a discipline for what I had done wrong in my life? Is this sort of divine payback for things that I've done wrong? Is it because of my sin? And it's a sticky question because the fact is, if we say, well, have I messed up at all? The answer is always what? Yes, at least for me and really for all of us, I can look back and say, yeah, I've I did some things and I've made some, I have regrets. And so is it possible that what I'm going through today, the challenge, the tough time, is a result of my behavior then? I want us to look at that question today because it's vexed a lot of people and trying to figure out what things are a result of my sin, what things are a result of the brokenness of this world. And really what I want us to get to is I want us to ask what's the most important question that God wants us to ask, the most important step that you and I can take when we go through challenging times, okay? So whether you're there right now and you're going, all right, you got my attention. What am I supposed to do in the moment? Or if your tough time is still to come, that you will have something that you know God is looking for this and he gives us a message through the prophet Joel, I'd like you to turn there with me if you have your paper Bible or if you have your smartphone. Some of you carry this name, Joel. It's a great name. And Joel writes a three-chapter book uh, right toward the end of the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And, uh, and I believe that Joel gives us a response in painful times of suffering that help us to know what is God looking for in my life right now. When we said last week in our opening that these 12 prophetic books that end the Old Testament cover actual events, real people, real history from 800 to 400 BC. And there's a chart you're going to see on the screen here that shows Israel's uh, history, and you're going to see where Joel fits in here, that uh, again, he's in about 835 BC, uh, he's prophesying, and you'll, you'll see where he sort of comes in there. And there, We mentioned the notes that if you want to follow along there, that we don't call them minor prophets because they're sort of like it's like the minor leagues of baseball or somehow lesser than, but simply because they're shorter. 
By and large, they're, they're briefer books, but they have a powerful message for today. So let's start with Joel chapter one, verse one. And he, he I just wanna give you a, sort of the context here. He starts with a, an absolutely devastating natural disaster. It's an invasion of locusts, and you'll see how it has huge negative effects, starting with verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children tell it to the next. I mean, he's going like, this is something you're gonna be telling the story for years and decades to come. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. If you drop down in the middle of verse nine, the response, the priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is what? Withered away. That, that last little line there says it all. Their joy is like gone. Now we might go locusts, like, I mean, I've seen some, is that like grasshoppers? Imagine, this, this would be like an hour day that someone gets into your bank account, they hack your bank account, they, they empty out your account, your 401k is completely gone, you lose your job, and you find out there's someone, and, and you've lost everything economically. And that day, in an agrarian society, when, when they, if you, if the locust came in and it says these locusts and those locusts, and they, they ate everything, basically what they're saying is that you're, the food by which you were gonna feed your family or that you're gonna survive through the winter is gone. And everything's dried up, the fruit, the, everything. And you're watching this happen and you're powerless and you go, God, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. If you're following along in the notes in your bulletin, uh, digital bulletins on our homepage, just click bulletin. The end of the notes are um, the message notes for today, but I, I put down three facts. Fact number one, we, we all suffer. Now most of us today, we're gonna be like, locusts don't really, like that feels really foreign to me unless you live in another part of the world or you're a farmer in some part of our country. But for us today, it might be like I heard about just this week, a young mom who was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. It might be a guy who discovers that his wife has decided she wants to be with another man. Or the parents who discover at the pediatrician's office that their little one has some pro profound special needs and will be with them the remainder of their days and all of a sudden their minds are going, they think, how are we gonna care for this little one after, how do we provide for after we're gone? It could be Father's Day. Father's Day for you might be really painful. You go, I, uh, the man in my life, you know, might be your husband, your dad, maybe, maybe your dad, it wasn't his death, but that you have a strained relationship. He walked out on you like my wife's father when she was four and, and you grieve for a relationship you've never really had, but you see other people have, and you're like, man, I wish I had something like that. 
Pain comes in all shapes and sizes. But the fact is that we all suffer. And Joel just says, this day of the Lord has come and there has been great suffering. Not only do we suffer, when tough times come, the second fact is this, and Joel shows us this as well, we all ask questions. In Joel chapter one, verse two, he, he just says, has anything like this ever happened? He's going like, this is, I, we've never been in our lifetime through something like this. When we go through tough times, it's normal to get bewildered, to be confused, to ask questions. I think the place a lot of us start, we go, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? Like the letter I read at the beginning, you just go, have I done something wrong? Is it the way I lost my temper? My mom, is it that I stole when I was a kid? I cheated on a test. And what happens? And, and, and what can sometimes take place? I want to just back off where Joel's here a second. We're going to get to what Joel, he, he, he gives us the most important question we can ask or response in a time of pain. But what we sometimes do is we can sometimes go astray. Number one, we may wrongly assign blame to God. We go, God, if you're all powerful and all loving, how can you allow this in my life? I thought that giving my life to you that things were gonna somehow be blessed and, and it seems like things are just as difficult as they were before when I didn't have a relationship with you. And for some people that I know and that you know, it's the obstacle that keeps them from faith in Christ and from following him as they go, if there's an all-powerful, all-wise all loving God, and he allows this, I can't follow him. You know anybody like that? You might say, that's part of my own heart. I wish we had time to delve into this one more, but some resources have been helpful for me. There's a book by Lee Strobel called Case for Faith, and he has a chapter in there, How Can a Good God Allow Suffering? Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, or Tim Keller's Reason for God. Lots of great books. If you want the names of those, again, just email our office, and we'll, we'll get those to you. But Sometimes we just go, we blame God. We go, God, this is on you. I'm holding you responsible for allowing this to happen in my life. The second thing we sometimes do is that we prematurely and painfully, we blame ourselves. We think unconsciously or maybe subconsciously, we go, this must be God's discipline for something I've done wrong. It's a common view in other religious faith. It's sort of your karma, right? A lot of other religious faiths is sort of you're always seeking to appease the gods because you know you've done some things wrong or something goes wrong in your life where we've done, there must be a cause for this, so let's give a sacrifice to God and maybe he'll relent from this evil that's come upon us because we've obviously done something wrong. And then the third thing we sometimes do is we project that into other people. And looking at other people's pain, we may figure that they're somehow getting what they deserve. We have this false religious formula that goes something like this. Good people are blessed and bad people suffer. So we sort of say, if, if you live a relatively good life that God owes you, you're gonna be blessed by God. And conversely, if you're experiencing pain and sorrow in your life, it, it, it can only be the case that you had it coming to you, that, that you're being paid for the wrongs that you've done. Now here's the challenging part of that. Are we sometimes, do we face the music and consequences for the wrongs that we've done? Yeah, all your moms and dad would go, I've told my kids that if you do that, I'm just telling you, here's what's gonna happen, right? And we say there are consequences sometimes for what we've done wrong. Like I read an article in, a, <laughs> in The Plain Dealer and uh, it's, this is it's always about guys when you read stories like this. Here's what it says. This is a true story. Two co-workers decide to celebrate the 4th of July in their own special way. 
they loaded an old washing machine with 10 pounds of firecrackers. You know where this is going, don't you? Lit a fuse, dropped the lid, and ran. Nothing happened. 20 minutes later, they decided the fuse was a dud and went back to try it again. Presumably, neither was aware of the chemical friendship between oxygen and fire. As they lifted the lid, the entire washer exploded, landing them both in the hospital for several days. Shrapnel from the washer spread in a 25-foot radius. There was a huge crater in its wake. Considering the impact crater, each perpetrator suffered relatively minor wounds and burns. Sometimes we suffer for our behavior, right? There's just, we're like, yep, you sort of had that coming to you. You're driving 85 miles down the highway and you get a ticket. You're like, that's just, that's the consequence for what you've done. But here's the problem. If we take that general principle that sometimes you reap what you sow, and we go, every single person who's going through pain or some kind of difficulty challenge, and we go secretly, or we whisper to someone, or even on our own minds, we go, I wonder what they did wrong to deserve that. We become like Job's friends. Remember Job, he suffers profoundly. He loses all of his children, his business, he, he's, his body's racked with pain. And his friends come by and go, Job, obviously, look at you. You've done something wrong. You've sinned. Confess it to God and be right with him, and maybe he'll relent. And God hears those friends and what they say in the formula they try to have that good people are blessed and bad people suffer. And how does God respond to those friends of Job? He's angry. He's like, you've, you've completely misread this. There's a similar situation in the New Testament that uh, in John chapter nine where the disciples see a man who's, who's blind and he's been blind since birth and the disciples see only one of two possibilities. They say in John chapter nine, was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It had to be one or the other. Either his mom and dad messed up or this guy messed up and that's why he's blind today. And Jesus says, neither. It wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sin. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. So we just want to step back and say, although sin may lead to suffering, suffering is not always due to sin. And when you read the prophet Joel, what you discover is that he never talks about the sins of the people. He just says, here's the, here's the pain that's come upon you, and here's how I want you to respond. And I wanted to emphasize this in this particular book because Joel is sort of unique in that sense, and you might have something come into your life and you think, I don't really know why this is happening to me. I don't know why, I don't know why I'm going through this. But there's a question that you and I can ask, and it's the most important response we have, and it's this. When tough times come that we can ask, Lord, what do you want to do in my life or in the lives of people who are watching? God, what do you want to do in me? How do, you, how do you want me to respond to you, God? It's what the prophet Joel urges God's people to do. They're going through this awful time. They've lost everything. And if you read through the entire three chapters, you'll see there's barely any kind of reasons expressed why. But Joel answers the question, what? What should they do? I want to look at the key verses from Joel. But before we do, I'd like to just do a two-minute clip to give you the overview of the first two chapters. This is from the Bible Project. Let's take a look. In chapters one and two, Joel focuses on the day of the Lord. This is a key theme in the prophets, and it describes events in the past when God appeared in a powerful way to save his people or confront 
evil. Think about the plagues in the book of Exodus. But the prophets saw in these past events pointers to a future time when God would again confront evil among his people, but also among the nations and bring salvation to the whole world. And so here in chapters one and two, Joel has brought two parallel poems together that focus on this theme. So chapter one is about a past day of the Lord. He begins by announcing a recent disaster that a locust swarm has devastated Israel. And his description of the swarm recalls the day of the Lord against Egypt. Remember the eighth plague from Exodus chapter 10. Except this time, the locusts are being sent against Israel. And so Joel calls on the elders and the priests to lead the people in repentance and prayer. And then Joel actually himself repents along with all of the priests. Chapter 2 comes alongside, and it has the same poetic design and flow of thought. So Joel announces another day of the Lord, except this time it's future, not past. It's an imminent disaster coming on Jerusalem. And he begins describing what seems like another wave of locusts, but he uses military and cosmic imagery. So the locusts become God's army, like cavalry and soldiers that are marching and destroying everything in their path. And the sun is darkened, and the earth quakes, and Joel says, the day of the Lord, it's dreadful. Who can endure it? And so once more, Joel calls on the people to pray and repent. And he says how? To rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to your God. In other words, Joel knows that repentance can be just a show that you put on to get out of trouble. And he says God's not interested in that. He wants genuine change for his people to stop their selfishness and evil. And then Joel says why Israel should repent. Because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's full of love. He's quoting here from the book of Exodus about how God forgave Israel after they made the golden calf. And from that story, Joel learned that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. And so he leads the priests in acts of repentance and prayer, asking God to spare his people. So what does Joel ask us to do? What does God ask us to do? Um, He calls us back here. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, and it says this, The Lord declares, when we go through challenging times, when something's happening, what do we do? Return to me with all your heart. Wherever you are, go back to God. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. And that day they would often tear their clothes, put dust on their heads. He goes, I I don't want you to, I want your heart to be broken before me. Return to the Lord, he says it again, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He's saying, I want your heart to be soft in God's hands. Whatever you're going through, he's saying, I I want you to, instead of asking the elusive question, why, God, why has this happened? What is the cause of this? God, he goes, I just want you to come back to me. I want you to turn to me. I want your heart to be soft in my hand. If I've strayed in some area, Lord, I'm gonna return to you. In my pain, I'm gonna seek you with all my heart. Knowing your greatness and compassion, I will trust you. And no matter what comes my way, God, I will hold on to you. In your pain, he's not asking the the question why. He's saying, what, what does he want you to? He wants you to return to God. When you study history and you look at the lives of people that, and what kind of people they became, The variable isn't whether they went through pain and suffering and challenges and trials. The question is, how do you respond in that moment? Do you become bitter? Do you get get angry? Do you you sort of turn on other people or turn on God? Or do you go, God, God, I don't know why this is happening, but God, I'm coming to you. I'm turning to you, God. I want to hold on to you. If there's anything in my life I need to turn away from, God, I'm turning away from that, and I want to turn back 
to you. Which brings us to fact number three. And some of you today, you're going, Jonathan, you don't have to say like why, I know why I'm in this painful situation. It's because it's something I did do. Like I'm facing the music for some things I've done wrong in my life. And so I know why it's happening. But you know what I tell you? When you take a step toward the Lord, you know how he responds to you? Here's, here's fact number three. We are all, every single one of us, you are offered God's grace in a new start. Chapter two, verse 25. Let me read this as our final passage. Maybe the most familiar passage in Joel. God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Do you see it? Do you see his heart? I wonder in your life, as you look back, if you, what you'd say, these are the years of my life that the locusts have eaten. I messed up. I had a season of my life. Maybe I'm in the season of life right now that I know I'm not where God wants me to be. And I know why I'm facing some of the consequences. I'm just, I'm not the person he wants me to be. You know what he's telling you? He's telling you, I, I'll repay you for those years. But what I want you to do is I want you to turn to me. I want you to leave that behind. And don't focus on the why is this happening and what's the, but I want you instead to say, God, I know that you welcome me. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. And you will repay me for the years the locusts have eaten. God, you have plans for my life if I will turn to you. The message of Joel to you today, come to Jesus. Be humble before Jesus. Hold on to Jesus and allow him to be at the very center of your life. Years ago, I was going through a, a painful situation in my life. We don't have time to talk about what it was, but we've all been there. And I remember just in my own time with the Lord, just going, God, I, I don't understand why. Like, why? This doesn't make sense. Like, if you were as smart as I am, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't do this, right? We always have that thought. And, uh, and I didn't actually tell him that, but I think I thought it. And uh, God, why are you allowing this? And I remember having lunch with a, an older mentor in my life. And he said, Jonathan, I think you're asking the wrong question. You may never know this side of heaven, the answer to the question why. But if you ask the question what, God, what do you want to do in my life? What are you, what are you putting together to allow people to see you at work in me? God, your, your ways are so much higher than my ways. Your thoughts than my thoughts. God, I don't know why, but I'm gonna ask the question, what? What do you want me to do? And best of all, the question who has already been answered. Who's with me? Who will never leave me? Who do I know is going to be slow to anger and abounding in love, full of compassion and grace, and welcomes me home? I got that answer as well. I know that Jesus is still saying, come to me, all you who are weary, you're burdened, and I will give you rest. This little three-chapter prophecy from Joel, he acknowledges we all suffer, we all ask questions, and we can know this. You have a God who is waiting for you wherever you are to turn to him again, to not let your suffering push you away, but to step in and say, God, here I am. May my heart be sought before you. I wanna know you and follow you. And he'll welcome you home when you return to him. Let's thank him for that. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I thank you today that you 
are unchanging in your grace. Your love, your forgiveness, who you were, Jesus, during the days of the prophet Joel, you are today. Who you were when you walked this earth, you are today. And who you've been for other people through the centuries, and you've welcomed them home, Lord, you're doing it today. Lord, I, I, I could never know all the pain and the suffering and the trials and the disappointments in this room and those watching online, but you do, you do. And you're inviting us to come and to trust you, the sovereign God. Lord, sometimes we wonder if our hearts are just too dead or dull or numb or would you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and lead us back to you and help us to walk, walk in your ways and to know the joy of your presence. In your powerful name we pray and everyone said, amen.